Thank you, Dodsworth, for that beautiful song this morning. I don't know what to think. Alex said that went to us last week's song, and I thought our last week's sermon, and then that, and then I think it goes with this week's sermon, and so I, I don't know if what's going on necessarily. Um, I usually don't. Uh, you can ask Trisha, she'd tell you. <laughs> but I have, uh, I just did invite your attention to John, the gospel according to St. John, Chapter 2, Gospel according to St. John, Chapter 2. And I'm not... I don't think I'm going to be preaching anything unusual this morning. But I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. really touched by this morning's special song. Gospel according to St. John chapter 2, and the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, they have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Oh, that we could get a hold of that one verse. Solve us a lot of trouble, wouldn't it? And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. And Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. They bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man that bring, beginneth doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. Father, thank you for coming this morning. Thank you for her just ministering to our hearts just now. Father, we just ask that you'd come and minister to us, continue to minister to us in the scriptures, in the study of your word. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it seems to me that 
every denomination has a lot of committees. I don't know why we ever, uh, how that ever happened. You don't read of all these committees in, in the New Testament, but it just seems like there's a lot of committees in, in different denominations. So if you'll imagine with me, and, and, and I don't believe this is true, but, but I think it's a fun thought experiment, I'd like you to think with me that heaven has full of committees. And uh, we get to be on one. All of us together, we're going to be on this committee, and we're on the first miracle of Jesus committee. That, our job is to figure out what the first miracle Jesus is going to do while he's on earth. And I suppose that that in the midst of here, there's enough different personalities, we all would have different ideas. I know my idea would be to do something amazing, to do something with pizzazz, to do something to just, just shock everybody. I don't know, maybe you go out to the Sea of Galilee and say, hey folks, I just want to show you who I am and start walking on the water. That'd be pretty cool. Or, you know, uh, you know, something big. Maybe raise someone from the dead. Start off the ministry that way. Let's start off with a bang. I like, I like to just jar everybody, you know, and just kind of wake everybody up and say, this is awesome, and this is Jesus, Messiah. I suppose that there'd be some here saying, no, 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 no. We don't need to be doing some of this big pizzazz, showy stuff. We don't need showy. Jesus' ministry is supposed to be marked by compassion. And so, uh, you know, let's, why don't we heal some uh, uh, blind child? Let's, let's touch a father that has leprosy so he can go back to his family. Let's do something really compassionate so that we can start off Jesus' ministry letting everyone know that Jesus has come to show compassion. Not a bad idea. But of course, it, there's enough personalities here. We can't all agree. Someone else is going to stand up and say, you know, I don't think that's the way we ought to do it. I think what we ought to do is we should show everyone that the gospel is for everybody. We want, we want the rich and the poor. We want the, we want the, the, the uh, people that are, are, have influence, the people that have no influence. We just want everybody to know that the gospel's for them. Why don't we do the feeding of the 5,000? We, we could start off that way. But somebody gets up and says, I know, why don't we have Jesus turn water into wine at a wedding and nobody knows that he did it except for a few servants? Huh? If you didn't know this was Jesus' first miracle, if John didn't tell us this was the beginning of his miracles, none of us, I, I truly believe, none of us would have picked this as his first miracle. It doesn't make sense to pick this. It doesn't show great power. It doesn't show great majesty. No, hardly anybody knows it. I mean, we're, I mean, this is, nobody's getting healed. It's a bunch of people at a wedding drinking wine. And I know what some people are thinking. It probably wasn't alcoholic. It probably was, based on what the governor says. They were all, he says they all oh, they drink the wine, and then when they're well drunk and they're a little tipsy, then they bring out the worst wine. 
So it's probably alcoholic. Sorry to burst your bubble. There's a reason that they typically drink wine and not water. The water wasn't safe. And they didn't have the same preservation methods as that we do. Oftentimes they would mix the wine with water so that, so that it wouldn't make you too drunk and you weren't supposed to get drunk. There's a lot of scriptures warning against it. But you know, not everybody follows what they're supposed to do. And here we are at a wedding. People are well drunk and the wine is gone. And as I read through this text, I think, I think perhaps the reason that this story, John's the only one who tells us about this first miracle, it wasn't enough to impress Matthew, wasn't enough to impress Peter through Mark, Luke doesn't record this story. Why, why would John include this story? My suspicion is, is it has the elements that are necessary to receive a miracle. And I know this morning that there are many who have come to church in need of a miracle. You have some situation in your life that you're praying about that unless God breaks in and does something about it, you just don't know. You just don't know what the outcome will be. You just, you just, you just, you realize this morning that that unless God steps in, if the normal, natural way of things goes, it's just not going to be good. And you need a miracle this morning. And here we find the elements. The, the things that we need to bring for ourselves in order to be in a place where a miracle is possible. Now, let me caution you here this morning before I get into it. This is not a formula to manipulate God to get your own way. I think there's a lot of people that preach that way, or maybe if they don't preach that way, that's the way we take it. We can't manipulate God. God will not be manipulated. And this isn't a formula that if you just if you jump through the proper hoops and, and you've got enough this and enough of that, that God will automatically do what you say. We can't even do that. We, we, we have no, no ability to make God do what we want him to do. But what we can do is we can put ourselves in a position where God can move. Oftentimes, miracles are blocked by our own action or inaction. And so I'd just like to show for just a little while what I believe puts us in a posture, puts us in a place where God can do a miracle. The first thing that I notice is that Jesus was invited to the wedding. Jesus was invited to this wedding. I know that seems kind of basic, but so oftentimes we don't invite the Lord into our daily lives. 
God is, God is, of course, welcome at church. He's welcome in our prayer closet and in our devotional time. But is, is the Lord welcome in, on the job site? Is he welcome uh, uh, in the grocery store as you're shopping for groceries? Is he invited to be a part of every element of your life? So oftentimes, we separate in our minds the secular and the holy. We, we think of certain times as sacred and other times as social or or perhaps uh, uh, work, or, or just living life. We've kind of, we've kind of, especially I think for us guys that like to compartmentalize. We've got our boxes in our minds. And I can be very much this way. This is, this is God's box. This is, this is work. This is the things I have to do. This is family box. This is extended family box this is and you and you and you just go through your boxes and god you need to stay in your little box we don't say that but oftentimes until we put until we invite god into these other arenas of our life we've been talking in sunday school class about our, uh, our marriages. And one of the things that I really hope we get from it, if, if there's only one thing that, that the young adults class that they get from it, if they get one thing, I hope it's this. Invite God into your marriage. Amen. God has something to say about that. And you might, you might not have it all figured out and you might you might still have some disagreements, but when you bring God into it, it's amazing how the Holy Spirit oils the gears. They just don't grind quite as much. And if you're elbowing your spouse this morning, I might recommend it may be you that needs to be doing the inviting. Doing the inviting. But what about at work? Was God welcome on, on the job site? I mean, we pray, Lord, help me to do well at the job, help me to get the promotion, but is he a part of our daily jobs? As we're meeting with clients, as we're helping with this task or that task, is God a part of that? The goal of every disciple, the goal of every disciple of Jesus Christ is to learn how to live the way that Jesus would live if he were living our life. Now, I said a lot of living in there. So let, me, let me say that again so it's not confusing. The goal of every disciple is to learn how to live like Jesus would live if he were living our life. The popular phrase, what would Jesus do, isn't just about what Jesus who lived, you know, in you know, A.D. 25, what he would have done in that year, but what would he do if he were living in 2018? 
What would he do if he were married to your spouse? What would he do if he had your boss? Would, would he talk that way to your kids? Do we invite him in? Do we invite him in to our relationships, to our workplace, to our hobbies? Now, I, I'm afraid that some of us don't know Jesus well enough to really know whether he'd go fishing or not. I have, I have a suspicion that if you were living your life and you love fishing, he probably would go occasionally. Jesus went apart from his job and his responsibilities from time to time. But we didn't find him doing that every weekend. And I have a suspicion that, you know, if we get to know Jesus well enough, we'd find out just exactly how he would, I think he'd tell us how to deal with those situations and those circumstances. But we have to invite him in. We have to invite him in. Jesus was invited to this wedding. We don't even know the name of the bridegroom or the bride. But this couple, this couple, invited Jesus right into their marriage right from the beginning. And I don't even know if they knew that the miracle took place. All we know is that Jesus got an invite and Jesus showed up. Is it possible for Jesus to do miracles in, in areas that we've not invited him into? Yes. I've even known sinners that have gotten miracles because God is so loving and so gracious. He wants to show himself real and mighty in their lives that, that, that he is per, he's, uh, done miracles for them. But may I just suggest that that's the exception and not the rule? There are all times different ones could testify, I didn't even pray about this and God answered this. He met this need. And it just shows how much he loves us and how much he cares for us. But, but most often, most often, we're going to have to invite him in. And then we're going to have to ask him. We're going to have to ask him to do the miracle. Mary, show, uh, uh, she's, she's a, and I don't mean this to sound negative, but she's kind of a typical woman. She knows what's going on in the kitchen. You know, when we have the uh, things at the fellowship hall, it's the ladies that knows what's what. Most of us guys don't have a clue. Even if we're in and around the kitchen, it's the ladies that knows what's what. They're the ones that knows what order they're going to put the food on the buffet tables. And uh, some of us that try to help them, they tell us where to put it. And we just say, yes, ma'am, and we put it wherever they tell us to put it. They have things figured out. They know what is needed. And if something's missing and it's not Sunday, uh, sometimes we guys get sent to the store to go get what's missing. 
Many a time, isn't it, fellas, that we've gotten sent. <laughs> Why don't they go themselves? Because they're not leaving the kitchen. They're going to know what's going on in that kitchen. And this is a good thing. This isn't a negative thing. I, I, I'm not in any way trying to disparage our ladies at all. This is, this is just typical. Oftentimes, not every single woman, I understand God's given us all different personalities, but a lot of ladies, the vast majority, they know what's going on in the kitchen, even if they're not the cook or the one responsible. They just automatically are responsible because they're a lady. They just, that's their job. So in they go. If they're able and so forth. And Mary knows that they're out of wine. How does she know this? She's a woman. She's, she's been in and around the kitchen. She's a guest at this wedding. She's not in charge of hospitality. I, I forget, they've got terms now. They hire special people, wedding coordinators and all this that know all the details. I don't know why anyone would want that job. It sounds so stressful. My wife is a beautiful, sanctified saint. But the day before the wedding, <laughs> I'm just going to say that she didn't lose her holiness, but she was very stressed. <laughs> she was very stressed. I remember as they were bringing in the different tiers for the wedding cake, and they were bringing those in, and her imagination allowed her to see all those tears on the ground. I don't know if it's that my wife has just an imagination for seeing all the horrible things that ever could happen. She always does. We had to actually get her away from there so that she couldn't see them carrying the cake. We, we, had, to, we had to blind her eyes to it. Because it's a stressful situation with weddings. Just as stressful. So anybody who wants to be a wedding coordinator, I don't know what's wrong with you, you need therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm glad there's people that do it. But what I'm trying to say is, is Mary's in there. In the midst of this stressful situation. And these wedding feasts would go on for days. And here's the stress. You and I don't understand this. But in those days, that family could be sued for running out of wine. They have failed to show proper hospitality to their guest. And they are in danger of literally being taken to court over this. Wow. So Mary goes to Jesus, which also seems like a very woman-like thing to do, to go to the man. And says, fix my problem! Isn't that wonderful? Guys, that's our music to our ears. She doesn't want to just talk about it. She wants us to fix it. Wow. 
She goes to Jesus. She says, Jesus, they're out of wine. There is no wine. She had to tell Jesus about it. James tells us we have not because we ask not. I remember some time ago, it, it was years, it's been years now, probably, uh, probably seven years ago, I was, I was uh, teaching uh, Bible uh, uh, counseling, biblical counseling at Penview, and we had, I had to travel an hour and 45 minutes to go and to teach a three-hour class. And my brother happened to live on campus. Uh, Bethany was teaching at Penview at the time. And so I would take, in turn, the boys one at a time to go visit with their aunt and uncle and, uh, while I taught, and then I, they'd come home with me. The idea originally was that they were going to talk with me as we went home, because class got over about 9 o'clock at night, with an hour and 45 minutes, having already worked an eight-hour job and then driving the hour and 45 minutes to teach for three hours and then come home another hour and 45 minutes. The idea was that they were going to keep me awake. Without fail, they all fell asleep. <laughs> but we could, but we, one of the things we didn't really, I didn't really have time. I, I'd hurry home from work, change my clothes, get ready to go, and I would take the boy with me and we would, we would stop somewhere Fast food, drive through to, to get something to eat. And I don't remember which boy it was, Dennis or, or Brandon. But we had stopped at McDonald's this particular day, and, and uh, we, uh, they'd gotten a chicken nugget Happy Meal. And so I think it was Dennis, if I recall correctly, but whichever one, they were sitting uh, in the seat uh, there, and they were, of course, I'd, I'd handed him back his box and his drink, and, and I was eating my quarter pounder probably, and... And uh, he was eating his stuff. And after he had it gone, he said, they never gave me my barbecue sauce. <laughs> and you know, I, I reached in the bag and I found the barbecue sauce. I said, you have not because you asked not. You didn't ask for the barbecue sauce. When you didn't see it in your Happy Meal box, you didn't let me know. You just ate your chicken nuggets without any sauce because you didn't ask me. If you'd have asked me, I'd have searched the bag to see if it was in there. I said, I tried to help them to understand. I said, that's how it works with God. Oftentimes, God doesn't meet our needs and he doesn't uh, uh, answer our prayers because we never pray them. We never ask him. You didn't get your barbecue sauce for your nuggets because you didn't ask. And I wonder how many miracles we've missed out just because we didn't ask. We thought we had to solve the problem on our own. We had to put our own effort and energy into it ourselves. And all the while, God is standing there saying, just ask me. Just ask me. Jesus sounds a little rude, doesn't he? Woman, what have I got to do with thee? My time hasn't come. I, Jesus wasn't being rude. I don't believe Jesus was rude ever. I think what Jesus was trying to help her to understand is, is I'm not a child anymore. My relationship with you is going to change. There's, it's not that I'm not interested in you or that I don't love you, but and it's not that I'm going to mistreat you, but my relationship, my, my mission is changing. 
Remember when he was 12 and mom shows up, the Bible says he, that Jesus submitted and went home with her. He subjected himself to her authority. But now it was coming a different time in his life. And he was going to be answerable to the Father, the Heavenly Father, more than to her. And here's what Mary does that's so strange. She just looks at the, the, the servants and she says, whatever he says to you, do it. He just said no. <laughs> I think my, I, I, maybe all ladies go to the same school for this. I don't know. I know Trisha does. No doesn't seem to mean no. No means I'll just ask a different way. <laughs> Children do this too, doesn't, don't they? They just ask a different way. Mary says, whatsoever he says unto you, do it. And here's what strikes me. Jesus couldn't say no to obedience. Up until this point, he's not doing it. My time hasn't come. The Father hasn't given me uh, permission to do this miracle. I'm not, I've committed, done no miracles. I'm not going to, it's not time to do it. And Mary just says, all right, guys, you obey him. Wow. Is your obedience up to date? You know, I, I think this, this morning that oftentimes, because we're holiness folk, that, that we, don't, we don't always think about our obedience being up to date. Are the things that God's asked us to do that we're kind of playing around with? That we're telling him, Lord, I'll get to that. I'll work on that someday. Does, are we even listening to what he has to say to us anymore? I appreciated the song this morning about persevering in prayer. We don't talk about that very often. A lot of times we go in, we don't, prayer for us is, is we dump on God and then leave. But persevering in prayer means that you, you stayed in the place of prayer until God shows up. Until God speaks into our, in, into our life. But that isn't the American way. We go in, we know that God hears us, so we go in and we just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. And then we go on our way and we've prayed. Or you know we're behind the wheel and we're praying, we're telling God all these things and, uh, and praying for our needs and th these things. And, uh, and then we get to our destination and, and we're doing whatever we need to do. And those things are great. I love that we can pray at any time, anywhere. But how do we know if our obedience is up to date if we can't hear him speak to us? If we never give him an opportunity to speak to our hearts? And what if he asks us to do something weird? 
Can we do it? Can we walk up to that person at Walmart and say, I just feel like the Lord has told me to tell you that he's heard your prayer? What? God might do that? Might. What if he said that he just wants you to take a walk around the church during the song service? Just take a walk. That'd be weird. Yeah? Maybe it would. In order to obey, we've got to listen. Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And so the servants are there. They're looking for orders. And they, Jesus says, I want you to go and I want you to take these, these pots and I want you to fill them to the brim. Or fill, fill them. He just says fill them. And it says they fill them to the brim. I love this. No half job. They, they didn't get it three quarters of the way full and say, oh, that's good. They didn't say it was seven eighths. They, they filled this up until it was full to the brim. Is your obedience filled up to the brim? Oh, folks, there, we get into trouble here. We get into trouble here. We get really close to full. Whew, we got it done. Got it taken care of. I've been obedient, and, and look at, Lord, I've, I've been obedient in 12 out of 13 things. Yeah, but what about that 13th thing? Parents, did you accept that from your kids? You give them a list of things to do while you're away, and you get home, and they got everything crossed off but one thing, and you ask them about that one thing, and they said, Oh, we just didn't want to feel like doing that thing. Wasn't that they ran out of time? Wasn't that, you know, that something happened? It was, they just didn't feel like doing that 13th thing. Does that excite you as a parent? Do you feel like they've been obedient? They've done 12 out of 13 things? Doesn't really. They filled those water pots to the brim. And then Jesus says to do something crazy. He says, I want you to dip your cup in there and give it to the governor. Now you and I know the end of the story and we know who Jesus is. But you've got to remember, these servants don't know who Jesus is. Jesus has never performed a miracle before. Jesus has not been out preaching and saying he's the Messiah. Up to this point... Jesus is a secret Messiah. He's undercover. And Jesus says to these servants, serve water to the governor of the feast. Governor was the guest of honor. I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't think I'd do it. I just, I, as I think about it this morning, I just, I, ha, I have a hard time getting my mind around it. I don't know who Jesus is. I don't know 
what's going to happen when the guest of honor gets water? I don't, I don't want to bring dishonor to my master. I'm a servant. And yet I've been told by Mary, who's probably got some kind of clout with the family, they've probably been ordered to follow her orders. I remember that Jesus requires us to act in faith. There is no reason they should give that cup to the governor. If you take their position, you don't take it from the standpoint that we know, but what they knew, there is no reason they should do this, except for that Mary has told them to do what he says. They've already spent a long time filling these water pots. And it wasn't just, you know, turn on the faucet. We're talking about getting water from a well and hoisting it up. They're already sweaty and hot. They've already put a lot of effort into this. And they've got this cup. I can tell you, Lorinda, what I'd be doing. I'd be looking. I'm supposed to give this to Lorinda here. I can still see the bottom. It's still water. Uh, I don't know who this guy is. Here's your wine. I don't, I don't see why they would do it except that they knew they could trust that whatever happened, that those that were in charge of them would bear the responsibility. That the responsibility would fall if they were asked, why did you serve water to the governor of the feast? That they could say, I was told to. And do you know this morning, God asked us to do some things that we don't see that there was any way it's going to work out and we can't see why it matters. And we may take the cup the whole way and see nothing but water. But here's what we know. Our master will bear responsibility for what he's told us to do. He will take responsibility for what he has told us to do. Amen. It's why the Petersons can go to Africa. With all the questions and all the unknowns and all the things that don't make sense and all the and all the and all the problems that they are facing and will face that they know that the master who told them to go will bear the responsibility for what he's asked them to do. It takes a lot of faith. You have to trust your master isn't going to sell you out.
They had to trust that Mary, if they, if, if they were called into the question, that Mary wouldn't say, I don't know what these servants are talking about. Go have them beaten. They had to trust in the one who told them to do. How many times as a child did our parents tell us to do things that didn't make sense to us? And we'd say, why? Not, not rebellious why. I'm not talking about a rebellious why. I'm talking about, why are we doing this? This doesn't make sense. And sometimes our parents would say, you just have to trust me. This is what we need to do. And we understood that our parents would take responsibility for what we did. Because they told us to do it. And how many times as parents have we asked our children to do things that they had no understanding of why we were making them do that? I mean, why did they have to dress up for church? It's just church. Why do, why do we refrain from doing certain activities on the Lord's Day? That doesn't make any sense. It's just another day. And yet they trust us to take responsibility for the directions that we give them. This is faith. To trust that God will take responsibility for the consequences of our choices. That doesn't mean that we won't face any consequences. It doesn't mean that, just like for Wes and Misty, that doesn't mean that they're not going to feel sadness and, and, and homesickness. It doesn't mean that they're not going to face culture shock. It doesn't mean that you won't face some difficulties because you minded God. It's simply that you know that the Father is going to help you through it and that you can trust Him. And when we act in faith, and we say, Lord, you've told me to do this, and it doesn't make any sense, and I don't know how I'm going to pay for it. I don't know how. You want me to give my last dollar in the offering plate? You want me to, you want me to give my car to somebody? You want me to... Oh, Lord, I don't know how, how you're going to make it work out. But I'm going to trust you, even though I can't figure out how you're going to make it work. I don't think any of us would have picked turning water to wine at a peasant's wedding, someone whose name isn't even recorded in, in history or even in the Bible. I don't think we would have picked that as the first miracle. But I think it does help us to understand where we need to be if we want to see a miracle happen. But one thing it does show us is that God cares about the things that perhaps other people does they just wouldn't care. Wouldn't been what we would have picked. We may have said, Jesus, you this is this this isn't the way to start your ministry. But there are people that were in need. And you've come this morning with your need. And maybe other people would say, you know, your need isn't very big. Maybe your need isn't very impressive. Maybe your need, if God meets it, isn't going to lead anybody else to God. It isn't going to do anything to, to change the course of history. Your need is just 
just a tiny little drop. I mean, God's got a whole lot bigger things to take care of. He's got the Middle East crisis, and he's got North Korea, and he's got Washington, D.C. And I mean, there's a lot bigger miracles that for God to deal with than just your little thing. And John reminds us, Jesus' first miracle was for a bridegroom who nobody knows and didn't change the course of history, but it mattered to him. And whatever you're facing this morning, I want you to know it matters to him. You can't manipulate him. You can't try. You can't say, "Lord, I've done all these things that that were in the message. I've 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 got all my uh, T's crossed and my eyes dotted. I, Lord, you owe me a miracle. You don't do that. You just simply say, "Lord, I've done all I know to do. I put my trust and confidence in you. And whatever this outcome, whatever the consequences." Whether you move or you don't move, I trust Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together this morning. Amen. Rocky, would you please dismiss us in prayer?